Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Episode 368 of the Bowery Boys. Henry Berg and the fight for animal rights in Gilded Age New York. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi, and welcome to the Bowery Boys. I'm Tom Myers. Greg Young is away this week, but in a moment, I'll be joined by Ernest Freeberg, professor and author of the book A Traitor to His Species, Henry Berg and the Birth of the Animal Rights Movement. Now, today's show is all about animals, animals in 19th century New York City. And surprisingly, I, I feel like it's something we really don't spend that much time talking about on the show, which is odd because animals were such a common sight on the streets of New York and in the market halls and in the factories throughout the 19th century. They were present seemingly everywhere. Their noise was everywhere. Their smell was everywhere. But I feel like maybe it's a little easy today to overlook the role that they played or to to write them out of New York's story. As an example, just consider how maybe we've even done this on the show. We quite often talk about the Erie Canal, its opening in 1825, and how it transformed New York City, right? And then also, in a recent show, we talked about the birth of Harlem and how those first street railways helped develop the east side in the 1850s and ultimately helped develop Harlem into a thriving neighborhood. In both of these examples, the Erie Canal and Harlem, there's something that we've forgotten to really spend that much time talking about. I'll give you a clue. Yeah, horses. It was their strong shoulders and backs that actually propelled these innovations in the first place. I think many of us have a rather quaint image of horse-drawn carriages. But how often do we stop to think about the actual work that those horses put in every day? The stress of pulling those private carriages, or much worse, pulling street trolleys, which were often overpacked with New Yorkers trying to get to and from work. And then what about the horses and the mules who toiled along the Erie Canal, tugging for long shifts at barges and pulling the goods that would transform the city's economy. It's not an exaggeration to say that New York was transformed, quite literally, by horsepower. But how were they treated? What happened when they got tired or or hungry or sick? And that's just horses. What about the domestic animals, the cats and, and dogs and birds kept by New Yorkers in increasing numbers in the 19th century, or those that were abandoned or feral in the streets? What about the friendless animals, like pigeons, who were shot for sport? Or cows, who were inhumanely starved for food and drink, on their way to a horrifying death in the slaughterhouse? In the book A Traitor to His Species, published in 2020 by Basic Books, author Ernest Freeberg tells the story of these animals, and of their protector, Henry Berg, who was the founder of the first chapter of the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Berg ran the organization from the 1860s to the 1880s and was really a celebrity in his day. He was widely covered by the press, widely mocked for his elegant eccentricities and for his unflinching defense of the humane treatment of all animals, even the lowliest birds and turtles. 
Professor Freeberg is a distinguished professor of humanities and the head of the history department at the University of Tennessee. He's authored three award-winning books, including The Age of Edison and this book, A Traitor to His Species, Henry Berg and the Birth of the Animal Rights Movement. Professor Freeberg, welcome to the Bowery Boys. Thanks very much. I'm very glad to be here. So I wanted to start real big here, playing off of the name of your book. Could you just speak for a moment about Henry Berg? Who was he? And I guess also, why was he considered a traitor to his species? Many people call, uh, considered him to be a great riddle. In fact, somebody called him the, the riddle of the 19th century because he devoted his the, the last two decades of his life to being the fiercest advocate for animal rights in the country, really brought that to the attention of, of the whole country. But it wasn't until he was 53 years old that he decided that this was his cause, that you know he had really shown no more sympathy or interest in animals, didn't actually even seem to like animals, didn't have pets, so that sort of thing. He would eat them. He would eat them, yes. Not a vegetarian. You know, not a radical animal rights person as we would think of today. But at the time, the, the reason he was considered to be a traitor to his species was because he started to advocate uh, for the right of animals not to be treated cruelly. He said, you know, we're still able to use animals in the various ways that we do. We just cannot impose unnecessary suffering. Mm -hmm. uh, and when he started to look for that through his new organization, the ASPCA, he found it all over the place uh, and, and raised a really important uh, national conversation about our obligation to other species. He would found the ASPCA in 1866. Right. And successfully then push through laws, right, that would give him that power to enforce anti-cruelty laws. That's right. I mean, these, these things are happening at the state level rather than the national level at that point. And so mm -hmm. New York was the first state to have an anti-cruelty law. This was not a brand new idea. Berg had picked up some of these ideas from the Royal SPCA in England, uh, which had started in the 1820s and 30s uh, by a lot of people who were also involved in the anti-slavery movement in England, the abolition movement. And so Berg took some of their ideas, but he, he innovated and, and made a much tougher, more aggressive law uh, in the United States. And really in that sense became kind of a leader uh, internationally. Uh, New York City became kind of the the testing ground for how far to push uh, animal anti-cruelty laws. But the man himself, Henry Berg, he found this cause, he found this passion in the last two decades of his life. He lived to be 74 years old. So who was he up until this right. conversion? Who was this guy? Right. Well, he was the heir to a, a fortune. His father was a very successful uh, and, and respected shipbuilder in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Berg grew up with that sort of wealth, but in a very sort of moral principled family. He was not interested himself in shipbuilding. And so went to law school, went to Columbia for a couple of years. And, and, and like many sort of wealthy people at the time, he didn't bother to finish. And what he really wanted to do was be a playwright. And he apparently wrote a, a whole series of very bad plays and very maudlin <laughs> poetry. And that's what he really wanted. He loved the theater. He took his fortune and married a, a wealthy uh, socialite, and they took off for Europe. And they spent most of his adult years writing bad plays and attending plays and going to all the dis capitals of Europe. And so he was a very cosmopolitan yeah. kind of do-nothing in a way, you know. And it was really because he knew so much about, about Europe uh, during uh, the Civil War, Lincoln asked him to be a member of the embassy in Russia. So he was in St. Petersburg when he had this epiphany moment. He was uh, apparently the, the Teamsters driving their horses and the streets of St. Petersburg were even more brutal than the ones in New York. And he saw this and he finally snapped one day and he, when he saw a Teamster whipping a horse brutally and he demanded that the man stop. And apparently it's because Berg was wearing the sort of gold epaulets and lace of, a, of an ambassadorial position, this Teamster, you know, dropped his, his whip and Berg said, wow, this is, this is the first useful thing I've ever done. And, and you know, he always told that story again, as this is, this is the moment when he decided, I've got to commit my life to this. And so he, he left St. Petersburg very quickly, uh, stopped in, in England to learn about what the Royal SBCA had done, and then, and then brought this idea back to the United States, uh, starting in, in New York City. So he has a kind of conversion. Absolutely. 
it's almost religious. It's like he's yes. been living this life, spending his family fortune, having a great time, terrible playwright, and then he just has this moment where he he literally puts himself in danger trying to like yes. stand up for animal rights. Yeah. Seems kind of unusual. No? It's well, it, yes and no because uh, there are a surprising number of these great radical reformers of the 19th century who would describe a similar kind of experience, you know, a, a mm. moment when slavery just seemed like a something they had to devote their life to to stopping or or women's rights or so forth. So it's not entirely un uncommon, although nobody was standing up for animals at this point. So Berg took a lot of those reform ideas that were in the air, including ideas about anti-slavery, which, right. you know, in 1866 was obviously still uh, very much in the air and, and brought them to the cause of animals. So he would come back to New York, form the New York chapter or the first chapter of the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And they would set up their first office, uh, you said, in attic rooms that were Broadway and 4th Street. So th this is kind of a humble beginning. Well, he wanted it to look humble, right? Because he was asking people for money. He wanted to make sure he was not, oh. you know, he, he was he, he wanted to make sure that he was not showing off his wealth or making making it look like this was a, a, a way for him to raise money off of the cruelty of animals. So he kept it intentionally bare bones as much as he as he could. And he wasn't going to bankroll the whole thing himself. No, and but he was, you know, I think in addition to having this vision about this law, he was very good at rallying support. And I think this this idea was in the air. You know, while my focus is on Henry Berg because he was really kind of the highest lightning rod mm -hmm. and the, the leader for two decades, it's important to remember that hundreds, if not thousands of men and women across the country followed his lead. You know, uh, the ASPCA is, is deceptive in the sense that it sounds like a national organization, but it, but it's it's strictly the New York branch of this SPCA movement. But Philadelphia, within a, within six months, started its own SPCA. Boston did. Mm -hmm. uh, and lots and lots of people said, this is the moment. And you do spend time in the book writing about Roger Angel uh, in Boston and Caroline Earl White in Philadelphia. Right. Uh, but most of your focus is on Berg. But he was also a very colorful character, right? So the people love to write about him in the press. I mean, because he was this elegant guy and also you write kind of a a sad face right this sort of melancholic air about him right right he did have sort of long drooping mustaches and he always dressed impeccably uh in in sort of an old-fashioned way and so he was a very distinctive figure on the on the streets and journalists loved to follow him around because he would you know end up in tussles with teamsters and turtle <laughs> dealers and you know horse trolley yeah. drivers and and uh, it was always a great show and Berg, you know, Berg wouldn't do enough about promotion and publicity, I guess, out of his his uh, failed life in the the theater that he he understood the value of playing up, even though it was painful for him. Mm -hmm. He understood how to create a controversy over animals that would draw public attention and raise consciousness. But you'd never want to minimize the sort of psychic suffering that because he was a man who regarded his dignity very closely. You know, he he had a lot of the values of his class, and the fact that people started to mercilessly taunt him in the in the newspapers uh, and that he he didn't win an awful lot of these battles initially uh, really hurt him uh, so he was a you know that, that that's part of why he looked sad he didn't always win mm. <laughs> hmm. he founded the ASPCA in New York in 1866 I'd like to dig a little deeper into the way that he would actually operate on sort yeah. of a day-to-day -day basis like how how did he find offenders? What would he do once he found them? You open the book actually with the story of Berg in 1866 boarding a schooner down at the Fulton Fish Market, and the schooner is filled with turtles. I was surprised, like thinking turtles. What are we doing protecting turtles? What were they doing protecting turtles at the time? What did he find, and why why were they looking at these turtles? Right. You know, and Berg later said he was looking for a, a, a shocking, sensational challenge, you know, to, to raise public consciousness. And so he picked this turtle target. Uh, green turtles coming out of the, the Caribbean, out of the Florida Keys, were an enormous delicacy at the time. Uh, turtle soup. Disgusting to read about later that there were these, you know, the Hoboken Turtle Club were these wealthy, well-heeled guys who would get together once a year and eat all day long and every... Every course was turtle, 
turtle salad, turtle mm-hmm. soup, turtle steaks, turtle dessert, you know. And uh, so they, they were gobbling these things up. Uh, but in order to ship them from from the, the south, they would flip them on their backs so that they wouldn't flop around. And they would put a, a rope, uh, pierce their flippers to sort of tie them all together. And they, and they would essentially be deprived of food and water for the week or two, several weeks that it would take to get them to the fish market. Mm. So Berg hated everything about this. And he, he, he targeted this when, and actually arrested a sort of a test case, arrested a ship captain. And, and marched him off to the tombs. That's right. That's right. And lost the case. Uh, mm. You know, the, it, it became this sort of farce in the sense that the, the ship captain argued, well, turtles aren't really animals, right? And Berg, would say, Berg said, well, look, it's animal, vegetable, mineral, you know, turtles are not vegetables and not minerals. It's got to be an animal. This law protects animals. So he really raised for the first time one of the, the radical thing about his, his law was that everybody thought it would be a good idea to protect uh, horses. Horse abuse was very evident in the streets, you know, and, and mm-hmm. concern about livestock and the way they were sort of moved through the streets. So people mm-hmm. could relate to that. But the idea that turtles had rights was was shocking. Radical. It, people were, said, well, look, they don't really feel anything. You know, they're, we're, if we go that far down the chain of, of being, what's next? Are we going to protect the rights of mosquitoes, lobsters, you know? And Berg, Berg would said, look, the law says all animals. Uh, and so he never lost an opportunity to push the argument much further than any, even his supporters were, were prepared for. You know, they were surprised when he went after turtles. And he had written that law that passed the New York legislature. I mean, yes. he, it was worded in such a way that said, and any other animal, right? It, that's it right. was intentionally wide open. Yes, that's right. And I, I found it fascinating how you discuss over and over in his more than two decades, uh, two decade long career, this question would just keep coming back up, you know, is a turtle an animal? Is a pigeon an animal? You know, right. are these, are rats animals? Do they deserve protection from cruelty? Yeah. No, the point here, again, is that he's not saying you can't use these creatures. It's just you can't abuse them. Uh, The other really radical thing about Berg's law, which is so important and really was different than anybody else had ever done before, was that he he built into the law the right of the ASPCA to appoint its own agents to go out in the field and make arrests. And the assumption was that the New York City police were probably not sympathetic to the law. Right. Or may not be able to see the line between cruelty. You know, you can you're allowed to whip your horse in order to move it along, but you're not allowed to abuse your horse. So, what's the line between normal use and abuse? Mm-hmm. And so, Berg argued that these agents who would actually have their own badges and and were really authorized to go out and make arrests uh, on behalf of the ASPCA, sometimes with the help of New York City police, that this really put teeth into the law. You know, this was something where Berg had the power to bring people to court. And even if he lost, he could make people very uncomfortable. And uh, he often won. People would go to jail or have to pay a fine or at least be dragged before the court and be forced to promise not to abuse their horse again, that sort of thing. Yeah. Berg was one of these agents. He had his own badge and, and went out there, but he also raised the money to put a whole a bunch of agents out into the field who were able to you know, keep an eye on the city streets in a way that had never happened before. You mentioned horses. And how, you know, New Yorkers were comfortable uh, with the law protecting the rights of horses because it was so obvious, right? They were they were everywhere. And yeah. uh, it seemed obvious that they should be protected. I'd love to just spend a moment with the horses because I don't know that today we really understand the, the extent to which horses were present in Gilded Age New York. Yeah. You know, they were everywhere. How did the city rely on horses? Aside from just, say, pulling carriages. Right. Well, they were the essential energy, right? For So on construction sites, the mass transportation system, the development of the horse trolley system in New York and in other American cities was absolutely crucial to the, the proper functioning and expansion of those cities, right? In the, mm-hmm. Before the horse trolley was developed in the mid-19th century, you know, which is essentially the trolley as we know it, but put onto tracks so that a, right. so that a team of horses can carry a lot more than they could with a stagecoach or a, or a conventional wagon. And that really made it possible for there to be suburbs. Yeah. Horse trolleys made that made the city much bigger. And, and so millions and millions of New Yorkers relied on these horse trolleys 
run by very lucrative monopolies that owned a particular line up and down certain streets. And that's where the the bulk of the the horse abuse showed up because these horses were, there were no laws regulating how many people could get on these trolleys. And so they might be designed to hold 35 people, but, you know, it'd be like a modern day New York subway car on, on rush hour. I was just going to say, you just keep <laughs> pushing and you find space. And so they... The, the difference yep. being, of course, that today electricity and the third rail is helping propel it forward. But at the time, it would have been the same, what, two horses, right. I guess, that would be carrying? That's right. That would be tugging this thing along its rails. And they were designed for 35, but you write that sometimes it'd be twice as many crammed sure. into one of these carriages. Yep, climbing on the roof, that sort of thing. And and the, the stable owners, you know, who basically owned thousands of horses to make this work, you know, because they're hundreds mm. of these trolleys going up and down the line all hours of the day, they would learn to get the maximum amount of energy for the minimum amount of input for these horses, right? So it wasn't that these horses lived a long, productive life. Instead, they would use them very hard and they would basically be broken within a year or two, right? So mm. rather than living in the normal full life, they would be driven right to the edge of their usefulness and then they would be sent off to the to the rendering plant. You know, there was no heading off to green pastures for retirement for these horses. They were just recycled, essentially. There was no second career. When, yeah, when, you, yeah. say, when, when you say rendering plant, and, and I should note, you go into some graphic detail, you know, on the demise of not just horses, but other animals um, that is painful to read, but mm. important to know, you know, what the ultimate destiny of so many of these animals had been and how that would change. Right. What would happen to horses? Once they were broken down, they would sometimes fall right. in place, right? They'd, they'd, they'd right. have sores, they'd fall over. What would happen? One, one thing Berg had to deal with was people would just abandon their horses when they were too sick to work, right? So the ASPCA spent a lot of time having to deal with sick horses that were just wandering the streets, you know, and nobody was taking responsibility for them. Uh, so that was that was an issue that you know Berg and and his his agents had to sometimes put the horses down themselves or get the police involved. Sometimes they would be sold to secondary, a, a, a poor individual who was maybe making a living carting slops or firewood or something would get the next you know maybe another year's worth of work out of these horses, mm. and then ultimately they would be turned into the rendering plant where they would be slaughtered and sent out usually to Barren Island in the harbor and and mm -hmm. processed into dog meat and you know rendering fat that sort of thing mm. so yeah it was brutal so say that berg and his men wanted to crack down right if they wanted to spot an abuse and they wanted to hold somebody accountable i'm curious about how this would actually play out you write that among other things right it could create a situation awkward situation a standoff between the uh, enforcer and the driver of the trolley. Also, it would create a lot of confusion and frustration among the, the passengers sure. and could even create a traffic jam. How would you, how would this really work? Would they stop a trolley in its tracks and inspect the horses? That was one of Berg's favorite techniques was to do that. The law ultimately, uh, judges had to grapple with this. Could they just routinely surveil and inspect every every trolley that went by? Or And basically the judge said, if you see evidence that a horse is being forced to work when it's suffering, you know, they would have sores on their backs or they would be limping or they would be collapsing, that sort of thing. Berg was, and his agents were then in a position to to intervene, to, to stop and to order the arrest of the driver, which would cause the traffic jam you know, sometimes huge traffic jams. And it was fascinating because the New Yorkers would then pile out of the, out of their trolleys and sit on the sidewalks and argue about what they thought about Henry Berg. You know, was he doing the right thing? Uh, you know, is this really the fault of the corporations that are running these trolleys and they deserve this? Or is mm. Berg this do-gooder who, you know, is working against the interests of his own species? And so Berg, any one of these things, and especially those sensational traffic jams, really helped to create the national conversation about about our obligation to animals uh, in this period. And you said that the driver would be carted off and arrested, even though probably the root cause was not the driver, right, right who was just doing his job, but the owner. Right. And, and you, you read about Vanderbilt, who was one of the most powerful um, horse railway owners in the city. Right. And Berg was sensitive to this because he tended to get accused as a, you know, as a wealthy 
person himself, he tended to get accused of being of picking on poor people. You know, the Teamsters. It's not they're just doing their job, right? They're mm -hmm. they're they're driving the horses they're told to drive. So Berg tried to shame Vanderbilt and other horse trolley owners. Tried to hurt them financially by having these these arrests, uh, which was really more of a nuisance than a major blow to them financially. He tried to take them to court and say, "Look, I I understand that, but the way the law worked at in the Gilded Age uh, was very much protecting the, the rights of capital. So it was very easy to say, well, all right, this driver is responsible for this. We're not going to hold the corporation responsible. Berg was frustrated by that, as many reformers trying to solve other urban problems were also frustrated. Mm. Was he ultimately able to bring about reforms? Was, was the ASPCA able to do anything? I mean, I guess they could stop and inspect the horses. Right, they did, I, and I think I think the general sense was that the nuisance that they created and the sort of change in public consciousness about this did lead to better treatment of the horses. It's it's hard to say that it made a huge difference. I think Berg, like everybody else, said, "Well, you know, what's really going to solve this problem is electric power." Right, mm -hmm. I mean, everybody could see that this was coming. Right, electric or steam, something something right. that wasn't horse powered. That's right. And I, so I think, I think technology solved a lot, some of these problems in a way that humanitarian reform actually didn't. Interesting. On the subject of horses, a different story you cover later in the book. This one about an epidemic, mm -hmm. about a very strange thing that was happening to the horses across the country, not just here in New York. You called it America's first great energy crisis, and it struck New York in the fall of 1872. What was it? This was a, a flu that broke out among the horses in Toronto in the fall of 1872. And it was enormously infectious and jumped into the horse populations, which were, you know, it was essentially like the, the energy grid of today, right? The horses mm -hmm. were moving back and forth among cities. And so over the course of a year, this influenza moved from Toronto all the way to Nicaragua and hit just about every, basically every city in America got hit by this. And when it arrived, within a few days, 80, 90, 95% of the horses in the, in the city would get sick. It's so spooky. I mean, even yeah. <laughs> obviously you were writing this before COVID, I imagine. Yes. Yeah. Right. It, it strains parallels because it, it had the effect that we're very familiar with now of completely shutting the economy down. Not mm -hmm. all the horses would die. Only about 5% of the horses would die in an urban environment and even fewer in a rural environment. But they got sick enough so that they couldn't work. Mm -hmm. And if you force the horses to work, which many did because they were desperate, because they needed money, because they were... And they had to move goods. Right. Yeah. So they end up working these horses even though they were sick. And if they did, these horses would develop a terrible secondary sort of pulmonary reaction that would kill them very painfully, often overnight. Uh, so Berg saw this as, you know, this is his obligation to protect these horses from, you know, if you work a sick horse, you have a short-term gain, but you're going to kill this this animal very quickly. And so he was, and he and his agents were in the streets trying to shut down whatever horse traffic remained. So in this epidemic, in this horse flu of 1872, which I had never even heard of until I read your book, you write that, that an estimated 20,000 horses in New York City would fall at one point, that they'd be out of commission and, yep. and stricken with this flu, and how that would just paralyze the city's transportation and industry um, right. that was so reliant. Did it raise in some ways, even if the, when, once they recovered um, and they were back in commission, did it sort of engender a little more respect for the animals? Yeah, it's hard to say because at the, in the short term, people said, yeah, boy, now we get it, how much mm -hmm. we need the horse, you know, and people, because they were trying to nurture their horses through the illness uh, and because the sight of a horse in the streets coughing and wheezing and collapsing touched people's heartstrings, there was a lot of conversation about, well, you know, maybe Berg was right. Mm -hmm. You know, Berg himself was a, was a subject of ridicule and, and fun for many people. He clearly, you know, was on the side of, of the horses in this particular case. And many people started to say, yeah, you know, Berg's kind of crazy. You know, he's extreme. We don't really need to worry about turtles. But come to think of it, he has a point about horses and we need to, to do better. Whether that had a lasting impact other than sort of gradually shifting public opinion, uh, it's hard to say. This was happening in the fall when most of the, the harvest uh, from the Midwest is coming down the Erie Canal. 
and the Erie Canal is shut down because the horses are sick. And so the people started to say, we're going to, you know, if this had lasted a, a little bit longer, you know, the city would be in desperate, there'd be no fuel, there'd be no food. You know, the energy crisis that this was led people, maybe they were more sensitive to horses, but they also was a lot more emphasis on saying, we need to hurry up and figure out how to do, how to replace the horse. Because without the horses, the supply chain kind of broke down. The whole yeah. thing was breaking down, which again is another spooky overtone, right, of what yes. we've been through. You mentioned the Erie Canal, and you write about how it was reliant. It was also reliant upon horses, horses and mules. And it's funny because I we speak on the show so often about the Erie Canal, the 1820s, when it opened and transformed the city's economy in the next couple of decades, mm-hmm. as New York became the premier port of the nation. But it never occurred to me, really, that it was horses and mules that were pulling all of these goods and products along the Erie Canal, and that there was another case here of mistreatment toward these animals. Yeah, it's a different kind of mistreatment because in order to pull those barges, what that required was was a constant pressure on the horse's shoulders as they're pulling this in the in the harness, you know, and the, and the mm-hmm. horses would travel, uh, as you know, there'd be two pulling the barge and then two resting in the barge and and the barge would have to carry the food for them uh, to make this whole trip. So that they could go 24 hours. That's right. Just just kept moving. And mm-hmm. But this, even though they would get this 12-hour rest or, or periodic six-hour rest, six hours on, they would develop terrible sores on their shoulders, galls, they called them, enormously painful. Wouldn't kill the, the animal, but it would make it sick and and weaken it so berg tried to stop that with some some arrests and it, again this is this is another example where people said look you're you're threatening the national economy for the sake of a few horses and mules right and you're you're putting the interests of animals above human beings and that this is unacceptable you know maybe we shouldn't have passed that law in the first place yeah you know, maybe yeah. this whole we, thing was a mistake Berg more than once had to go to Albany to defend the law when legislators decided maybe it's time to to get rid of this. You know, Berg's a tyrant who's using this law in directions we, we had no idea. We didn't realize the implications of protecting animals. You know, the Teamsters who were driving these barges would say, look, we, you know, this is unavoidable. Yeah, It's too bad that this is going to happen, but we need to torture horses and mules in order to have our economic benefit. And so we need to torture the animals. Yeah, you quote, uh, a friend of the shipping interest is saying that Berg must accept that, quote, the prosperity of of the canals depends upon torturing horses. Yeah, amazing. I imagine this would be another situation that would be remedied ultimately, right, by the development of railroads, by other steam and gas-powered vessels. That's right. I mean, Berg did not have much luck in court trying to stop the traffic altogether. I think he managed to curb the, some of the worst abuses and raise awareness about this. But ultimately, you know, he was the first one to say this, you know, we need what we need to do is replace this whole system entirely. Well, we've talked about horses and even turtles, but there's a whole menagerie left to discuss. <laughs> we'll examine Henry Berg's fight for the humane treatment of dogs, cows, and even children right after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. 
In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. We're back and speaking with Professor Ernest Freeberg, author of A Traitor to His Species, Henry Berg and the Birth of the Animal Rights Movement. We're discussing the role of animals in Gilded Age New York. And so far, we've talked about horses and turtles. Let's turn for a moment to man's best friend, dogs. In chapter six of your book, you focus on the story of Berg's fight against the notorious saloon keeper, Kit Burns. Who was Kit Burns? He was an Irish immigrant who was considered to be the most notorious saloon keeper in the most notorious section of of the city at the time uh, on Water Street and ran this place called Sportsman's Hall, Mm -hmm. which was a place to go to see dog fights. Uh, And he himself was a sort of champion dog fighter, raised raised these uh, fighting dogs. And also ratting contests where a bunch of rats would be dumped into a pit and they would do battle with a rat terrier and they would bet on how quickly it would take the terrier to kill a dozen rats or however many they they put in there. There was a saloon up front, right? And then you had to go down this long hallway to get back to this kind of arena that he had built where I would assume mostly men were standing around watching either dogs attack each other till one of them dies or is just seriously maimed. Right. Or dogs killing rats. And this was not just for their horrible, I hate to even use the word amusement, but they were also gambling, right? This was a gambling event. Yeah. And it was very popular among, you know, not just the immigrants, but also apparently some of the political leaders of in the city would attend these, these events. And, and some judges wouldn't even prosecute, right? Or wouldn't find them guilty because they liked it themselves. Right. That's right. So Berg considered this to be, uh, you know, one of his first obvious targets that he considered this to be be an outrage that, that had to be stopped. You know, it's one thing to, to suggest that you can use animals for meat or for transportation, but to sort of take pleasure out of watching them suffer was to Berg just beyond the pale. And so he, he always targeted Burns and, and others very early on in his, his career. Right. This, this blood sport, watching the blood sport was not just gruesome, but you also write about the corrupting influence of this yeah. kind of sport on children too, right? And upon the spectator. How did that work? It would numb the spectator to the violence? Is that it? That's that's right. I mean, it's it's interesting because it draws on some of the same arguments that the abolitionists made about slavery, which was right. that, that slavery obviously is enormously cruel to the enslaved people, but it also damages the slave master, right? It, it corrupts their soul. It, it makes, you know, any exposure to cruelty means that you're more likely to develop an appetite for it or, you know, it coarsens the soul, essentially. Mm. Some, for example, would argue 
well, we're going to kill rats anyway, so why not be entertained by it? Right. And he said, well, you know, the damage is, first of all, the rat has rights not to suffer unnecessarily as they would in the fighting situation, but also that this is bad for the spectators. They should not be enjoying this, that it speaks to something dark in the human psyche that a civilized society would work to stamp out. It seems like that might be a hard sell on the public in, in the 1860s and 70s. I think people generally recognize dogfights were were bad. Were bad. The rats was a harder one in that regard. It was, you know, it's, because they were vermin. Yeah, we're going to kill them anyway. They're annoying. Why not? If if some people enjoy it, let them have at it. In, in fact, they're doing a public good, right? Like right. Kit Burns is actually helping round up the rats and get them out of the streets. Right. And, you know, it was hard to arrest him because, you know, as you suggested, his pit was in the back of the sportsman's hall down this narrow hallway. So whenever police did try to raid the place to stop this, it was very easy to bar the door and disperse the evidence. So he finally ended up on the roof of sportsman's hall with a policeman looking down through the skylight at (laughs) at one of these events. And the policeman actually rappelled down on a rope down into the middle of the pit in order to catch them in the act. Uh, It's like a Tom Cruise film or something. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. But he still didn't end up winning in court. Oh, I was going to ask. I mean, he harassed him and and in fact harassed enough of these, you know, Burns had to start doing this clandestinely. So Berg sort of managed to control cockfighting and dogfighting on Manhattan, at least enough to drive it under, underground and to make it difficult, you know, bringing these people to court, even though he didn't win very often. Later in the book, actually, you write about another sort of animal sport, not necessarily for the working class, but rather sports for the wealthiest New Yorkers. And we're talking about pigeon trap shooting. But there are similarities here. I mean, it was a sport. Animals were being killed sort of just for game, right? Just for the fun of it. Yeah, and this is an example where Berg tried to say, you know, it's it's wrong to accuse me of just going after poor people. Uh, you know, rich people are just as capable of being cruel to their animals, you know, and, and just because pigeon shooting is is sanctified by the fact that it's expensive shotguns and they report it on the sporting pages and, you know, wealthy people like James Gordon Bennett Jr., the famous publishers, uh, just because they're doing it doesn't mean it's any better. In fact, it appeals to that same dark impulse to take pleasure in what is obviously the pain and suffering uh, of animals. And again, animals that many people consider to be expendable. So Berg went after them and tried to make the case, ultimately did succeed in changing public opinion about this. And he was an advocate for the development of clay pigeons. And you know there were a lot of experiments of what sort of things might work that would be a replacement for the pigeon. And ultimately, there still are some pigeon shoots going on apparently, but but mostly it's clay pigeons. You write about a rather grotesque 10-day event that was held out in Long Island in which thousands of pigeon bodies were just littering the ground and it seems like the public kind of was revolted Yeah, by the carnage. Right. Yeah, and I think in a lot of ways, you know, while Berg didn't always win in court, I think he started to win in the court of public opinion. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, it was his agitation about this that contributed to, to people being aware of that the fact that there should be an alternative, you know, that this wasn't just okay. Yeah. And in the 1870s, the ASPCA movement would experience quite a bit of growth with new chapters right. springing up That's all right. over the country. So the, so something is happening, right? The American public is being changed in his direction. Right, right. And, and partly it was his ability to manipulate the attention of the press and also picking up on some of the techniques of the anti-slavery movement, the the anti-cruelty movement ran lots and lots of newspapers and pamphlets and en- encouraged uh, children to get humane education, developed curriculum, you know, reached out to young people. So they, were, they used a lot of tools in order to change public opinion. It wasn't just the law. Berg was a believer in the law, right? You know, he even proposed at one point that people who were caught whipping their being brutal to their their wives or their children should be publicly flogged, right? Publicly flogged. Publicly, yeah. Very medieval, right? (laughs) Very medieval. Medieval with this modern twist. He said, what we really need is for somebody to invent a steam-powered whipping machine. Because if you allow human beings to do the whipping, they'll either get tired or they'll have some sense of mercy. 
and what we want is equal justice. So if you had a machine to whip people, and even his supporters said, look, you're you're going off the rails here. You know? <laughs> Maybe you need you a know. vacation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people would say this is this proves the fact that he, it's not that he loves animals, it's that he hates human beings, uh, you know. Mm. Another important aspect of his sort of fight to reduce cruelty toward animals was just in dealing with how New Yorkers were fed, right? In terms of how they got their food, how their food was brought to the city, usually for quite a while still alive to be slaughtered in the city, and how it was slaughtered and, and dressed and prepared to be sold in the market. You know, you don't immediately think of cows when thinking about protecting cows from from cruel treatment in Gilded Age New York. What was it about the treatment toward cattle that concerned Berg? Right. You know, Americans were enormous meat eaters more than anywhere else uh, in the world, as I guess they still are. Mm -hmm. So as these urban environments in the East began to develop in an era without refrigeration, increasingly the Midwest was providing, or the Far West was providing these cattle, sheep and pigs as well. And they would have to be shipped by rail, they would go often through Chicago and then and then make a trip to the eastern markets where they would be bought by butchers and you know markets and and butchered essentially in place. So there there are a lot of places for cruelty along that the line, and one of them, the, one of the first targets was the shipping process because there were no regulations about how many animals could be put in to the boxcars, uh, and there were no sort of safeguards, so they would be crammed in there large and small animals. They would trample each other. They would be deprived of food and water, sometimes for a couple of weeks along the way. Weeks? Could be weeks if they got sidelined because, you know, human passengers got priority. So they could be, it could be certainly well more than a week without food and water. So this wasn't like a couple of days up to Chicago and then a, a day or two to New York. Right. This was no. a long drawn out process. That's right. And they wouldn't get to I don't know, stop and kind of get some fresh air and some fresh water and some no, rest. No, I mean, that was, that was the ASPCA's push was to say every 28 hours, they have to be let off the train uh, and given food and water and, and rest before they get put back on. The system as it existed, first of all, animals would lose about 20% of their, their body weight in the course of this, this ordeal. Mm. And also about 20% of the animals would die along the way. This was just considered unavoidable spoilage. Mm. So this was one piece of, of the cruelty that the humane societies, especially across the upper Midwest uh, and into New York and Boston, uh, Philadelphia, began to work together to try to raise concerns about this. Interestingly, they, you know, they really started to push for the idea that it'd be much better for these animals to be slaughtered in Chicago. So they would have a much, you know, they don't have the second long journey. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we think having read Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, you know, which came decades later, that what could be more abusive than the Chicago stockyards right. to humans and, and animals. But but at least it was only half the journey. Half right? the journey, right. They'd only have to endure the train trip to Chicago. That's right. And so, so the Humane Society was trying to push people to accept the idea that it was okay to eat meat that was pre-cut. You know, we take it for, for granted totally now, but people in New York were used to being able to go and see where the live cow was being turned into the, the slab of meat that they were going to buy. And that's another piece of, the, of Berg's concern was in a city like New York, there would be hundreds of slaughterhouses and butcher shops where this, this was going on. And this became, first of all, an environmental problem because you've got mm -hmm. enormous amounts of offal and, and guts and blood and, and, you know, to deal with. But also it, it was a place where the killing of animals was, was quite visible and for some sort of a form of entertainment, you know, you'd go down to the local butcher shop and watch them do their work. And so Berg was concerned about that piece of this as well. And sometimes it was it was often very violent, too. We're talking about like hit, hitting them right on the head with a hammer and that sort of thing. Right. That's right. You know, yeah. And hoisting them up by one leg and, and that sort of thing. So Berg was interested in trying to find ways to make First of all, that slaughter, if it ha since it's going to happen, it should happen in a central monitored place away from public view. Mm -hmm. And that when it's done, it ought to be done with some sort of understanding about what these animals are going through to make it as painless as possible. That then took away the spectacle, right, of these animals actually walking to their death because 
there had been this other aspect, right, of the the animals arriving and then being actually marched through the streets. So you had very right. sick, tired, weary animals being led off to slaughter, which right. was, it must have been quite a spectacle. Yes. Yeah. The, the idea of the livestock being herded through the streets of New York. Yeah. You know, you can imagine that in the colonial period, but to realize that that's still going on in the 1880s and it's, yeah. it's fascinating. It's not an image of the city that we normally have. No. And the, the sights and the smells that must have gone along with that must have been incredible. Right. But it also raises the question of, I guess, if it's better, if you believe that it was better to move the slaughtering out of sight, what does that mean? You know, in a larger sense, like, does it, yeah. is it better to not see something than to see something? I guess it gets back to his question of, are children placed in danger just by seeing the violence itself? Right. It also hides it, though. Right. Yeah. I th it's a really important question. And I think one that was unresolved by the movement uh, in those years is, you're exactly right. I mean, removing it from visibility doesn't necessarily stop the cruelty. If the concentration of farming and slaughter is all happening in a, in, a, in a concentrated area away from people's view, people are much more likely to become apathetic about it or, you know, not know it at all. So, you know, today's activists are trying hard to make people see the thing that Berg was trying hard for people not to see, right? Because mm -hmm. he didn't think it was good for them to, to see it, you know, as, and I suppose, you know, the argument might be that if you actually saw what was happening to your dinner before it arrived, you would be more concerned. You, you take more ethical responsibility for what you were seeing. Although he did see it and he would continue to eat steaks. Yeah, it's it's interesting. A lot of people, of course, you know, he saw some of the most horrendous butcher shops. Yeah. Uh, you know, he saw what these livestock looked like as they were being dragged sick off of the rail cars in New York City. And uh, he said that, you know, in, in, a, in a future civilization where where human beings are, are acting properly, Everybody will be vegetarian, but they're not there yet. So he, he hmm. yeah, he was a meat eater. And he, he said, you know, there's only so much I can do. I think he was right in the sense that if he had pushed, there certainly were radical vegetarian reformers in that period. But if Berg had added that on top of everything else he was doing, I think he would have been even more ridiculed. On the subject of things that were not seen or that they hoped that the general public would not see, just to speak briefly about the subject of stray dogs, feral dogs, mm. and the sort of extermination of those animals, because that's an important topic that you cover too. How stray and feral dogs were rounded up, especially during the summer when there was a fear of rabies or what was it called? Hydrophobia right. at the time. What were the reforms that Berg put in place to make, I guess, the rounding up of these animals and the extermination of those who needed to be exterminated more hum humane. Yeah, this was really one of the areas where people were definitely seeing cruelty in the streets, right? Because every summer, especially, there'd be a rabies scare mm -hmm. and mayors would, would announce essentially what they would call a war on dogs. And they would round up their many, many stray dogs. The whole concept of dog ownership, you know, has evolved since then uh, so that, you know, there were no lease laws. There were minimal licensing laws. And so a lot of these things had to be invented in this in this period. And there were a tremendous number of stray dogs, big packs of them in any American city that were considered a hazard at, at all times, uh, but were especially dangerous, people thought, during the rabies scares in the summer. So the city would announce a, a bounty and say, you know, 50 cents for a dead dog, bring them to the, the depot on the East River and we'll, we'll pay you or, or bring a live dog. And immigrants or homeless children would, would make a little bit of a, a living in the summer rounding up these stray dogs and sometimes grabbing people's beloved pets off their stoops and bringing them along too for the, for the 50 cent payoff oh. or killing them right in the streets. Oh. And there's a whole market, right? There was even middlemen. There were middlemen who would kind of work right. as agents. Right. Yeah. Because I think that the, in, in some situations, the, the children were not allowed to accept the money directly. So they would send it to a broker who would then turn them over to the city for, for extermination. So the humane societies were you know, concerned about the way these animals were being killed, often in the streets, and the way it was encouraging all sorts of people to turn on man's best friend and round them up and, and turn them in. At the same time, they recognized that animal control was necessary. Right. They often fought against the idea that every 
every stray dog is carrying rabies, you know, and they felt like rabies was being oversold. Mm -hmm. uh, but they were trying to deal with the problem of animal control. And really, the, you know, the real pioneers here were the, were the women of Philadelphia who formed the first uh, dog shelter. Rather than just rounding them up and killing them the day they arrived, they set up you know, a system for sifting the, the sick dogs, the ones that needed to be, to be put down right away from those who they hoped the, either the owner would come find them or they could find a new owner for them. And they you know, treated them humanely and they've set up a, you know, a decent place for them to be while they're waiting for this, this final word on their fate. And then they were trying to experiment with ways to euthanize animals. You know, this is one of the ironies of the movement is that the, you know, in order to be promoting humane treatment of animals, the humane movement had to get into the business of exterminating large numbers of, of unwanted animals. Uh, right. But they would do it in a humane way. That's right. They And so the, in Philadelphia, that meant ex uh, developing the first, uh, as far as I could tell, the first gas chamber, hmm. you know, kind of chilling from a 20th century perspective, but at, from, mm -hmm. from their perspective, this was a way to fairly quickly put down a bunch of, of animals uh, when it was time to do that. And ultimately, how would Berg and the, the New York ASPCA, how would they go about exterminating the feral dogs? Berg decided that drowning was, was a more humane way to go than, than this uh, euthanizing. And so they would round them up, put them in a cage on the edge of the East River with a crane. And at the end of the day, the unwanted dogs, the unclaimed dogs would be dropped into the river to drown. Uh, hard to imagine that as being a, a humane, but it looked to Berg yeah. like, the, like the best way to, to do this efficiently. And uh, yeah. So I think animal control really remained uh, an unresolved problem. But again, this is an example where one of the advantages he saw was that this was concentrating this in a particular area away from public. The public mm -hmm. could go watch this, and apparently they some did. But at least you weren't killing them in the streets or encouraging everybody to participate. They also pushed right. the idea of dog, you know, professional dog catchers appointed by as you know agents of the city, rather than just saying anybody who wants to get involved bring your dogs and we'll pay you a bounty. It makes me think of children. You know, again, these were spectacles that children were either part of or could could bear witness to. Um, and on the topic of children, you know, throughout his career, Berg would face criticism, you know, that his actions um, and his support for animal rights in some ways ignored human rights, right? That he was focused so much on defending the rights of, say, turtles and pigeons, but what about the suffering of the people and the children and the women who were all around him? In the 1870s, he would do something about this and, be, and take proactive steps. What did he do? What did Berg and the ASPCA do to, to address human suffering? Right. It, it really goes back to the, the creation of these agents, these you know badge-wearing people who are deputized to go out and, and, and work against uh, cruel behavior. Right, so people saw that Berg and his agents were successful in stopping cruel behavior towards animals, and they would start to come to him and say, "Well, what about women and children who are being abused?" And in particular, there was one particular case of a girl who, who uh, somebody came to Berg and said, "I, you know, she was a social worker, and she said, I know this this poor girl is being beaten every night." And Berg said, "Well, that girl is an animal too. You know, it's not clear that we have authority, but we're going to go ahead." And sure enough, they intervened surveilled this apartment, arrested the, the woman who was abusing this child, and made sure the child was relocated to a, a safe, loving home. And this evolved into what became the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. You know, so Berg did not deny the, the importance of this. He didn't think these things should be done under the same umbrella. Mm -hmm. right? Some people said, yeah, we ought to form the Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals and Children. Berg said, if we do this, human beings are going to always trump the rights of animals. We need to have two separate organizations. Mm -hmm. And so he was a founder, along with Elbert Sherry, his, his, his legal partner, in starting an organization like that, which spread across the country. There is so much more that we could discuss. I'm especially saddened that we have to jump over his relationship with P.T. Barnum, mm -hmm. uh, because Barnum is... One of my favorite characters, uh, but let's just say that the two of them had it out, right, over over his 22-year career. Obviously, Berg took issue with the way that Barnum treated and presented his animals in his 
American Museum and then later his circuses and traveling menageries and such. Although they would ultimately really develop a kind of friendship, they, they, they respected each other. They did. They did. And, and, you know, Barnum always said, look, I know more about animals than you do. I'm not being cruel to them. It's in my best interest to be, to be good to my animals. But he, at the same time, he always praised Berg's basic idea, you know, he, and said, I'm the Berg of Bridgeport, you know, and, mm-hmm. and even though they had this rivalry, when Berg died, Barnum uh, attended the funeral and put in his own will a bequest that after he died, that a, a statue in honor of Henry Berg Fountain was uh, set up in Bridgeport, Connecticut. So they they battled back and forth, but at the same time, they had kind of a symbiote. You know, both of them were very good publicists and, and colorful figures, and each of them, I think, benefited from uh, the publicity that when they had these battles over how to treat elephants or whether or not there should be a menagerie or, you know, the, the American Museum, as you know, I'm, I'm sure, burned down multiple times. And Berg would say this is a, you know, catastrophe. We should just send these animals back. But when you think about, you know, Berg marching onto that ship full of turtles, you know, with newspaper reporters close behind, and you think about Barnum you know, who's titillating the public by putting nervous-looking mice in front of snakes. They're both seeking publicity, right, to yes. to drum up interest in whatever cause they had or in their business. Right. You mentioned that Barnum would attend Berg's funeral. Berg died during the Great Blizzard of 1888. He passed away on March 13th, 1888, at 74 years old. Was it just a coincidence that this happened during the blizzard? Was was it in any way related, or was he just sick at the same time? Yeah, just a coincidence. Right, uh-huh. he had been he had been fading for for a couple of years up to that point. Just the hard life of hours and hours spent working in the streets. That's right. I mean, he was he was uh, you know he was known to confront teamsters, and if they didn't cooperate, he would grab them and throw them in the streets. You know, and he he ended up in the back alleys, and you know people would say. Who is this guy who is extremely wealthy, you know, has this mansion on Fifth Avenue and uh, top hat, you know, dresses like a dandy and, and then is wandering around in the, in the back alleys looking for looking for cruel behavior and uh, looking down into the skylight into Sportsman's Hall and, and uh, <laughs> challenging pigeon shooters, you know. And, you know, for Berg, he said at one point on this, I was stuck. He said, you know, I spent decades of my life amusing myself availing myself of you know every possible pleasure a single day fighting for the rights of animals has given me more pleasure than all those years of trying to amuse myself so you know he he suffered for this but i think it was really it meant it meant the world to him and today more than 130 years after his death how do you look upon his legacy what has he sort of left or changed about our relationship with with animals well, I think, you know, he more than anybody else got that conversation started, you know, made the transition from the, the way people were framing the possibilities of reform, of civilizing our society uh, as we were dealing with the pressures of industrialization and urbanization in the, in the late 19th century. He really shaped the conversation. Anybody who's involved in animal rights today would look back and see all the limits of what his vision was, right? And, and the idea that he is an advocate for animal rights, many people who advocate animal rights today would say, well, he wasn't really defending any strong sense of rights. Uh, he was concerned about animal welfare rather than animal rights. Mm. But I think it's important to recognize that he's, he's the start of what has evolved, you know, that now, in addition to the ASPCA and other SPCAs that are thriving across the country, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of organizations that are taking on aspects of the problem. He took them all on seemingly at once. So, you know, Berg, I think, is really in in some ways a a founder of a lot of those organizations, even as our vocabulary and the sophistication of our understanding about these problems has has evolved a lot since then. And if he would look at, you know, New York City in 2021 and the role that animals still play, you know, in the city today, I mean, I guess dogs and cats are pets, far fewer feral Dogs right. and cats running the streets. Rats, definitely still a problem. <laughs> um, the meat mostly arrives, you know, packaged and ready to go. But horses, horses are still around. Horses are still controversial 
you know, in the city. Yeah. We're st- Mayor de Blasio ran a few years ago, you know, on the issue of shutting down the horses in Central Park, the carriage horses. Where do you think Berg would stand on that one? Oh, I think he definitely would be against the carriage horses. Yeah, there's no doubt that that would seem unnecessary to expose them to, to that environment. For, for just the sort of nostalgia or the entertainment of passengers. Right. It'd be interesting to see what he would think about the Central Park Zoo since he wanted to shut that down. You know, and obviously zoos have right. come along enormous, you know, tremendously. They're far more informed by it, by an environmental sensibility than, than anybody was back in, in the late 19th century. But Berg, again, thought these, these animals are suffering in order to entertain human beings rather than, mm-hmm. you, know, you know. He wasn't buying the enlightening argument for... He wasn't. Which, you know, Barnum was always saying, look, I'm the animal lover here. I'm the one who's actually, le- you know, ex- letting people see these animals. And they, yeah, I'll, I'll accept their 25 cent ticket on the way in, but I'm, I'm giving them what they want. You know, this hunger to, to get to know the natural world more. Mm. It's too bad that Berg and Barnum never went into business together. <laughs> they, they might have been able to do some amazing things. Yes. Well, there's so much more in your book, A Traitor to His Species, Henry Berg and the Birth of the Animal Rights Movement, published by Basic Books in 2020. Professor Freeberg, thank you so much for being on the Bowery Boys. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks very much. And thank you, listener, for joining us today. Head over to our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com where I'll be posting some images of Henry Berg and of the early efforts of the ASPCA. A huge thank you to our patrons who have joined us on Patreon.com because of you and your continued small monthly contributions. Greg and I are able to make the show full-time. There wouldn't be a Bowery Boys podcast without you. Head over to Patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bowery Boys to find out what audio extras we have in store for our patrons. You can get a signed copy of the book, a mug, stickers, and more. We've got Bowery Boys swag over at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys, and thank you so much for your support. Greg will be back in the next show with me. Thanks again for joining me today on this exploration of animal rights in the 19th century. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.